You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. First of all, every American should have watched All the President's Men by now. And not only just watched the movie, but watched it very carefully, possibly three or four times. Not only is it one of the best films ever made by a very good, solid director, Alan J. Pakula, who died in a freakish, tragic car accident where he was literally, hold on to your seats here, decapitated by a manhole cover or some other object that flew into his car while he was driving. (laughs) I mean, really, a very uh, shocking and strange way Dan, but this is a director in Alan J. Pakula who isn't just some guy who made all the president's men. I mean, and by the way, he was 70 when he was decapitated. You know, um, they call it a road accident on, on IMDb. But I, I recall it very distinctly as something flew up into his car and decapitated him. As a 70-year-old man driving, that's not the way you expect to go. But, I mean, this man directed really... Uh, in my opinion, at least three great movies. Now, he started out with A Sterile Cuckoo, uh, which was a kind of a quirky, quirky, strange movie from 1969 with Liza Minnelli that kind of scared me as a child, but is very interesting. And I do believe it has a, yeah, it has the wonderful song. It was nominated for an Oscar, uh, Come Saturday Morning. And that was really its linchpin back in the day to me as a child, as a music lover. You may remember that song. Come Saturday morning, I go far away with my friend. Blah, blah, da, 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 And so that was his first film. He followed it up with Clute, which... I'm pretty sure won Jane Fonda her first Academy Award nomination. I mean, Academy Award. And yes, it did. She won Best Actress for playing a prostitute in that serial killer film. And then then he made another film, Love and Pain and the whole damn thing, which I don't know anything about. But then he made The Parallax View in 1974, which is a really riveting and timely political thriller, very paranoid thriller with a brilliant Warren Beatty performance. I think it's the best Warren Beatty performance of his career. And uh, honestly, you should watch the Parallax View, too, just to get an update on the Trump administration and politics in general. And again, remember, this is 1974, so... What is that, 46 years ago? And yet, it's as relevant today as it ever was. And then in 76, he made All the President's Men. Now, after All the President's Men, he didn't fare so well, but he made a couple films still that that are, well, one at least that was really good, Sophie's Choice. He did Sophie's Choice in 82, with the astounding Oscar-winning performance of Meryl Streep and the equally astounding but not Oscar-winning fantastic performance of Kevin Kline in a fantastic score by Marvin Hamlish in that film as well. 
And then, you know, he made a couple other films, one of which I thought was pretty good, Presumed Innocent, that uh, murder mystery with Harrison Ford in 1990, uh, which again had a wonderful score uh, by, that score is by John Williams. And, you know, if you remember the Presumed Innocent score, it was a little piano trickling. Dee, 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 dee. Oh, I got to get the key right. Dee, 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 dee. I don't know, whatever. Trying to carry it on there. And the late, now dead, a couple of actors from that, Raul Julia and Brian Dennehy, just recently died in that political thriller kind of blah, 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 mystery, murder mystery. Anyway, the claim to fame, though, if you really are talking about the greatness of Alan J. Pakula, in my opinion, you would be talking about the Parallax View in 74, All the President's Men in 76, and Sophie's Choice in 82, three great films. But in particular, All the President's Men, which um, won four Oscars. Jason Robards uh, won for playing uh, Ben Ben Bradley, the publisher of the Washington Post, Again, a true, uh, you know, based on a book written by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the two reporters who uncovered the Nixon uh, break-in of Watergate and started with the idea that it's just a little break-in by some crazy fanatics financed by some, you know, right-wing loonies trying to undermine Nixon's political opponent, but then found that it all came from one of many activities uh, paid for by a slush fund that Nixon himself approved to undermine because he was so paranoid to undermine his, his political rivals and to assure that he would win a, a second term. And um, but just a, uh, you know, just a fabulous movie with with Jason Robarts winning that supporting actor Oscar. But it also won best screenplay. William Goldman, an all time great screenwriter and novelist uh, uh who uh, just died a couple years ago at the age of 87, and he uh, he actually won two Oscars in his career. He won the screenplay for that movie, but also won Best Screenplay for writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and uh, just wrote a number of other great scripts in his life, like Marathon Man and uh, Misery, uh, Princess Bride, uh, just you know, really good writer and wrote wrote novels as well. Uh, and additional uh, Oscar wins were for Best Art Direction Set Decoration because that movie, All the President's Men, they completely redesigned the actual interior of the Washington Post with all the desks and the offices and the whole layout. It was a recreation, but they did it verbatim from the way that newsroom actually looked and the floor that floor looked. Back in the 70s when, um, I guess 1972, when they were doing this investigation, or maybe it was even 71, of the uh, of the break-in at Watergate. So they made this movie a few years later, obviously, to put it out in 76, and they just recreated the newsroom. So that won for the set decoration. Then it also won for best sound, which mainly is because they're racing all over that that newsroom and they're talking and barking back and forth and it was all picked up great so and the typewriters and the hustle and bustle they just really did a wonderful job of capturing what it felt like to be you know a newspaper reporter for one of the preeminent publications in the united states and 
on top of the biggest story that the country had had in forever, you know, up until Donald Trump, probably still to this day, uh, that story represented the biggest political conspiracy going to the highest level of our American government, uncovered by these two reporters from the Washington Post and written about in detail by them and discovered the, the title itself explains it discovered that the the conspiracy of the break-in and the the illegal behaviors that were going on stem from the very top, the president, and that all of the people that were carrying out the misdeeds, in, in effect, were all of the president's men. But it, not only did it win those four Oscars, it was nominated for four more. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Jane Alexander plays the wife of of somebody that they're that they're trying to get. Or actually, she was an ex-employee of one of the branches of the government, and they're investigating, interviewing her uh, as part of their investigation. Uh, best film ed- editing, uh, which is always a sign of a great film. Uh, editing is one of the most unheralded art forms uh, in cin- in creation of cinema. Um, when and how, and to what effect the editing takes place, especially in coordination with panning, zooming, and music, greatly enhances the emotional impact and effectiveness of lines in a script, lines by an actor or actress, uh, very much pivotal in how a movie affects you is the editing, which is to say, when do they cut? When do they not cut? What do they cut to from one shot to the next? And what is the camera doing when they cut in terms of panning, scanning, zooming, etc.? And also what music comes in at the cut. Um, And when it cuts in, what's happening to the camera? Now, a lot of that is a a combination of efforts by the cinematographer in terms of what they're doing with the camera. But they don't know how it's going to be edited. And it truly is a stroke of genius to edit in combination with the music and the cinematography to make the script work best and to have dramatic impact. In fact, I would go out on a limb here and say the editor makes the best picture, and that's why they tend to win together. You very rarely see... They used to say you never see a best picture without a best director. Bob Fosse was like one of a precious few to win best director in 1972 for the film Cabaret, but did not win Best Film. The, the Godfather won that year. And it's it's hard. It's shocking almost for people to realize that Francis Ford Coppola, widely regarded as a genius director, pretty much almost almost solely because of his Godfather 1 and 2 films, although also making the extremely uh, praised and well-thought-of Apocalypse Now, as well as the year before The Godfathers, he made The Conversation uh, with Gene Hackman. But, you know, there are lovers and haters of Apocalypse. Now, I don't, I'm neither. I, I don't adore it. I like it a lot, but I think it's flawed. Same with The Conversation. I like it a lot, but it has some problems. Well, The Godfathers are just genius. They're amazing. So really, if you really look at Francis Ford Coppola and look at the, all of his films he's made, you know, he really made his career on those two films. And The Godfather third one, he got a 
director nomination, got a best picture nomination. That movie's nowhere near the caliber of one and two. But the point is, he didn't win best director for The Godfather Part One, Godfather. He did win for Godfather Part Two. He didn't win the Oscar. Now, that's an all time great film, top five. I mean, just a pretty much a flawless movie, performance wise, editing wise. But he didn't win best director. And, you know, Bob Fosse won for Cabaret. And it's mostly because that movie just blew people away. He'd only made Sweet Charity before that. Uh, people didn't think of Bob Fosse as a great director. And, and really, it was the editing. It was the editing of Cabaret, the cuts from one shot to the next through the dance sequences with the hands and all of the amazing choreography that stemmed from Bob Fosse's choreography on Broadway, etc. But it was the editing and the lighting and the cinematography in combination in particular with the editing to the music that made Cabaret, Cabaret the great film it still is, and it's why it won Best Director. And the reason that's true is 10 times out of 10, the director of the movie sits in on the editing. They have an editor who technically does the editing, and they allow that editor, editor to make editorial decisions. But for the most part, there's not a, a film director worth his salt who isn't co-editor. They just don't get the credit. So when you see Best Picture, you used to see Best Director, but you almost always see Best Editor with Best Picture. Because in effect, that is the director. And you can't get a great picture without great editing. It is just incredibly, incredibly important. And for example... One of the you get you get people that work together with the same editors over and over and over again because it is such a symbiotic relationship. Case in point would be uh, Martin Scorsese, who you know when you think of Taxi Driver, etc. No, he didn't have the same editor back then. Uh, it took him a while to get to his key editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. Thelma Schoonmaker has done the editing for just almost so many Martin Scorsese films since she first took up uh, editing for him, which was with uh, Raging Bull in 1980, uh, which, again, Scorsese didn't win Best Director for Raging Bull. It didn't win Best Picture. Yet it was widely regarded by all the film critics as the best movie of the 1980s, made in 1980. It was, it was voted number one film of the 80s by all American Film Critics Association. And in retrospect, the fact that it lost Best Picture uh, that year, uh, it, it's kind of a travesty of justice. But that was Thelma Schoonmaker's first outing as editor with Martin Scorsese because and and if you look at the film the it's the greatest thing about it. Well the cinematography in black and white is also spectacular. As is De Niro's performance and the performance of Joe Pesci. If you really look at Raging Bull, why is it so great? If you took Pesci or De Niro out of it, it would it would have paled. It wouldn't have been nowhere near the great film it is. But in particular, it was the fact that it was filmed in black and white and it was 
the editing. The editing with the sound effects and the music. Spectacular genius. I mean, no offense to uh, Scorsese's previous works, including a very good movie in Taxi Driver, but Raging Bull was brilliant, and it, and, and it wouldn't have been without Thelma Schoonmaker. So he knew that. He knew that, Martin Scorsese. So in 82, she edits King of Comedy for him, and in 85, she edits After Hours, and in 86, The Color of Money, and in 88, The Last Temptation of Christ. And in 89, his segment with Nick Nolte of New York Stories. And in 1990, Thelma Shoemaker edited Goodfellas with him. And in 91, she edited Cape Fear. In 93, The Age of Innocence. In 95, Casino. In 97, Kundan. In 99, Bringing Out the Dead. In 2002, Gangs of New York. In 2004, The Aviator. In 2006, The Departed. In 2010, Shutter Island. In 2011, Hugo. In 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street. In 2016, Silence. And 2019, The Irishman. So that'll give you an idea of how important editors are and oh by the way Thelma Shoemaker won best editing for Raging Bull he Martin Scorsese did not win best director it Raging Bull did not win best picture in fact Raging Bull won only two Oscars Robert De Niro for actor and Thelma Miss Thelma Shoemaker for editing Thelma won Two other times in editing for Martin Scorsese. She won Best Editing for The Aviator and she won Best Editing for The Departed. Do you know how many Oscars Martin Scorsese has won? One. Best Director for The Departed. That's it. He finally got his directing Oscar. What they don't know, and I'm not taking anything away from Thelma Shoemaker, they do know this, is Martin was there through almost every step of the way through the editing. He is an editor with her, but she did the genius. They had the chemistry on Raging Bull. She won the Oscar for Raging Bull, and he never let her go. And if you really want to talk about the genius of Scorsese, Beyond the grittiness of his characters and the brilliance of performances that he's gotten from De Niro and then DiCaprio as his leading men, mostly in all of his movies, it's the brilliance of Thelma Schoonmaker. It's the brilliance of the editing. And the editing is gigantically important, which, although completely off topic, really from the subject matter of, of, this, of this podcast, brings us back to all the president's men because all the president's men was edited by Robert L. Wolf who was nominated for best editing but didn't win he had two other nominations for best editing in his career so it's very well edited and the entirety of all the president's men is genius for that reason 
Alan J. Pakula got an Oscar nomination for the direction. It got an Oscar nomination for the editing. William Goldman, an all-time great screenwriter, got a nomination for screenplay. Uh, and in fact, won. And, uh, and it won Jason Robards, the supporting actor, and it, the set decoration. Okay. So that sums up how great it is. Now, you'd say, oh, eight nominations, not that great. Until you stop, stop, and turn around. Somebody wants to love you. 70s reference. Come on. It's a 70s movie. Name the band. You know. Come on. Stop, stop, and look around. Somebody wants a little of ye. Come on. You know. That's correct. The Partridge family. But... <laughs> This film only got, only got eight nominations, yet won four of them, yet didn't win a major one, as in Best Director or Best Picture. It did win the major of Best Screenplay. But eight nominations, and guess what? The two leads who are freaking outstanding didn't get nominated. Movie stars, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford. Now, when you stop and think about, okay, well, so what? So what? They didn't get nominated. Let's look at their careers at that point. Let's look at the careers of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman right there. Okay, we're talking about 1976. Robert Redford, if you go back, Robert Redford has been nominated for how many? Let's just see here. I'm just trying to get this out here. He's only he's only been nominated once in his life for acting, okay? He's not thought of as a great actor. He got one Oscar nomination for acting. Guess the movie. Come on, you know it. Yes, The Sting. But when was that nomination? Exactly. 1973. So you have Robert Redford hot off an Oscar nomination in 1973 for his widely recognized best screen performance in The Sting. And oh, by the way, the year before that, he was a superstar, great actor in three movies, The Hot Rock, a, a vastly underrated comedy film directed by Peter Yates. And written, by the way, in part by William Goldman, who wrote All the President's Men. And in the same year, 1972, he was in an Alan J. I'm sorry, a Sidney Pollock film, Jeremiah Johnson, which was actually a very good film, very underrated film. And also in 1972, he was in the Michael Ritchie film, The Candidate, also a very solid film. So he came off of three really good, serious Comedy, interesting, diverse films from 72. Follows that up at Robert Redford in 73 with The Way We Were. How did he not get an Oscar nomination for The Way We Were? A very good Sidney Pollack film uh, that actually won two Oscars and, and got Barbara Streisand an Oscar nomination, but none for him. But in the same year, 73, he does get an Oscar nomination for The Sting, which, oh, by the way, won seven Oscars. Then you follow that up in 74, right after, on the heels of that, like I said, the great 72 and 73 by Robert Redford, and he does The Great Gatsby, which was an underrated 
adaptation. Screenplay, by the way, for The Great Gatsby by Francis Ford Coppola, adapting it from the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. But the film was not that well received. Still, it's memorable if you're following Robert Redford's career. Then in 75, he makes two films, The Great Waldo Pepper, which teamed him back with the director of The Sting, George Roy Hill. Uh, but And, by the way, the screenplay also by William Goldman again of The Great Walter, Waldo Pepper. But, eh, not that great of a film. I remember seeing it in the theater or the drive-in back in the day. And that same year, 1975, he gets back with with uh, Sidney Pollack and does, oh, geez, one of the greatest. I just love this movie. To me, it's still vastly underrated. Three Days of the Condor, uh, a really great sort of CIA conspiracy thriller with a great performance by Max von Sydow and Faye Dunaway in her heyday of the 1970s when she was the, with Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway, the greatest bar, nobody came close, the greatest actresses of the 1970s were were just in great films and great performances, Faye Dunaway and Jaden Fonda. So that's Robert Redford, okay? We got those three films in 72, Way We Were in The Sting in 73, Great Gaps, Gatsby in 74, Great Waldo Pepper, Three Days of the Convoy, Convoy uh, Condor in 75, and then he does All the President's Men. And it's a fantastic, serious film that gets eight Oscar nominations, but he doesn't get an acting nomination, okay? And now let's look at his co-star, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, who, you know, you've got to admit has, for what you think of him, short, irritating, whatever you want to make of Dustin Hoffman, just has been in so many great movies. I mean, and that, that guy, not only did he get an Oscar nomination for Midnight Cowboy back in, 1969 for Best Supporting Actor. But then in 1970s in Little Big Man, a really good underrated uh, Arthur Penn, who's, by the way, an underrated uh, director. Uh, he stars in that film. Uh, then in 71, he does Straw Dogs, which is a very violent, interesting, uh, underrated Sam Peckinpah film uh, from 1971. Hoffman doesn't do much in 72, but then stars in um, Franklin Schaffner's Papillon with Steve McQueen, a film which was, again, I don't know why, ignored by the Oscars, but holds up as really a pretty damn great prison film. Now, Hoffman did get an Oscar nomination in 74 for Lenny, um, which got six Oscar nominations, the movie directed by Bob Fosse about the comedian Lenny Bruce. In his controversial career. So if you look at Hoffman's career at that point, and no, oh, by the way, I forgot he got his Oscar nomination, his first one back in 1967 for The Graduate. So you have him Oscar nominated in 67 for The Graduate, Oscar nominated, and these are great performances. He was great in The Graduate. Oscar nominated for playing uh, Razzo Rizzo in Midnight Cowboy, a fabulous performance that really should have, could have, won in the Oscar in 69 for Supporting Actor, didn't win it. Does a great turn in Little Big Men. Plays an interesting dark role, hard role to play in Straw Dogs, wimpy guy, mathematician. Goes back to a village, everybody rapes his wife. He's got a 
fight back and, vi- and become violent, even though he's a mathematician. Good study of the what's capable and all what we're all capable of if pushed to it. Then he does Papillon, you know, a, a nerdy sort of inmate of Steve McQueen's in the prison. And then he gets an Oscar nomination playing a very profane and flamboyant comedian, Lenny Bruce. So you've already seen the greatness of Dustin Hoffman. And he does all the President's Men. And he's, I think it's his best performance. And he doesn't get nominated. Doesn't get nominated. Very ne- very same year he did Marathon Man, which is a really, really good thriller directed by John Schlesinger, director of Midnight Cowboy. Guess who wrote the screenplay for Marathon Man? William Goldman, William Goldman, from whose novel? The novel written by William Goldman. So William Goldman writes Marathon Man the same year he does All the President's Men, and he wins the Oscar for All the President's Men. And Hoffman's in both those movies. And then he goes on and gets his Oscar three years later for Kramer versus Kramer. He's nominated again in 82 for Tootsie. And, of course, he wins in 88 for Rain Man. But the point is, flashback to 76, this is Dustin Hoffman in the prime of his career, already nominated for uh, Lenny and and nominated for Midnight Cowboy and nominated for The Graduate, three-time Oscar nominee, overlooked for All the President's Men with Robert Redford, overlooked. For all the president's men. So my point is, you could say it got eight nominations, but there's two right there that it absolutely, positively deserved, okay? The fact that Redford and Hoffman didn't both get a Best Actor nomination for all the president's men is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, ridiculoso. And that doesn't even mention... The additional just supporting work. Now, as I mentioned, Jason Robards won supporting actor for All the President's Men. And Jane Alexander got a nod as supporting actress. But there are really great performances. Two additional great actors, all-time great actors that are always bit role players um, who worked at the Washington Post, in quotes, in that movie. Jack Warden and Martin Balsam. Both very good in that movie. Of course, you had Hal Holbrook playing Deep Throat in that movie. You had Ned Beatty, a great actor from the 70s, uh, underrated in that movie. Robert Walden, a very good actor, playing a shady Donald Segretti in that movie. F. Murray Abraham it was in that movie. Um, so the point is you had you had a lot of talent. And it only got eight nominations, yet won four of them. Here's the the ultimate point. You can't overstate the brilliance of all the president's men. Now, you want to say it's boring, okay? You go right ahead. It's 1970s. Things were slower. Things were more methodical. Things were more talky, okay? It wasn't all about the action. And Alan J. Pakula wasn't exactly an action director. Um. It's two hours and 18 minutes. It's a little longer than some movies. And it's got a dry ending. Um, That is, it doesn't wrap it up with Nixon in handcuffs or even with him, uh, some phony actor playing Nixon, resigning. 
it just types it up on a typewriter. An automatic typewriter starts printing out the news blast and it summarizes what happened after they busted it wide open, the two reporters, Woodward and Bernstein. It summarizes how it all came tumbling down thereafter via the typewriter electronically moving along as, in the background, Nixon's celebrating his victory and becoming inaugurated for a second term. It's a very cool technique used by the director to say, yep, he won, there he goes, but look what happened shortly thereafter because of this reporting, and he ends up resigning. Um, but a lot of people were put off by that ending because you stay with the movie for two hours and 15 minutes at that point, and that's it. Your payoff is he resigns via typewriter. You know, people wanted to see, like, some actor playing Nixon getting busted, you know, with his hand in the cookie jar and, you know, saying, I'm not a crook and all that stuff. They wanted to see that dramatized. And they just, they stayed cool. They didn't have anybody play Nixon in this movie. They kept it about all the president's men and they kept it about the reporting, the hardline real reporting. Which brings me to the reason why I've spent so much time here lauding this film and highly recommending that you see it and see it multiple times, especially right now. Not only is it one of the greatest films ever made, not only is it, to me, almost flawless in its direction and in its editing and the performances, especially by the two leads who weren't even nominated, and not only did it win an Oscar for its great, brilliant screenplay by one of the best screenwriters of all time, William Goldman. And, by the way, the music. The music is very, very good in it, too. And he didn't get a nomination, but he's an all-time great composer. David Shire. David Shire. And if you, if you watch the movie, it's subtle, but it's astounding. And if you look at movies he did the score for that you may or may not remember... Apocalypse Now, Saturday Night Fever, uh, Zodiac has a really good score, the newer one by David Fincher, Taking a Palm, one, two, three. Do you remember that score? Dun, dun, dun. I mean, you could just, David Shire was, he's just one of the best. He's still doing music scores to this day. He was, he's he won best score for the movie Norma Ray was also nominated for The Promise, but sadly, uh, not really otherwise nominated by the Oscars. But he, he's one of the greats in cinema, you know, composing scores for, for movies. And um, so it's just an, across the board, excellent people associated with the making of All the President's Men. However, however, that's not even... The real reason I'm recommending that you all watch it and watch it multiple times. The real reason is the current times, which is to say the media. I'm not talking about Trump. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the fact that the media is failing us. And I'm not bashing them as fake news makers, but I'm saying that it's a damn shame that during a time where we need ironclad reporting that doesn't sensationalize, 
that doesn't overreach at all so that we can nail the balls of this lying MF effort to the wall and so that we can expose the lies as corruption, the lies as corruption, not lies and corruption. See, we have to understand that lying to the American people about certain subject matter is in and of itself corrupt. You don't get to lie about protecting foreign nations over your own soldiers. That is in and of, in and of itself corrupt. But you got to nail the reporting. You got to get it ironclad what he knew and what he didn't know, what the president knew and when he knew it. And if you watch the reporters and all the president's men and the degree to which they have to get confirmation from at least two sources before they publish anything, and even then, they don't overreach. They're not sensationalistic in how they write the stories. And the one time they get a denial on the story after publishing it, Jason Robards, who won the Oscar for playing the editor of the paper, Ben Bradley, he, he took to calling them both Wood, Woodstein for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. He would call them Woodstein as one. And... The moment after they confirm a story and get it published and it's refuted the next day, there's a scene edited brilliantly where he yells, Woodstein! Very angry. Woodstein! <laughs> and they're like, uh-oh. And they go to his office and he's furious at them. And the one source that Dustin Hoffman's character, Carl Bernstein, thought he confirmed He's, the guy wouldn't tell him yes or no on a story that they wanted to go with in print. And Carl Bernstein says to the guy, well, I'm going to count to 10. And if you tell me don't go with the story, then I won't print it. If you don't say anything, then that means it's good. So he has it set up so that his silence from counting one to 10 is a confirmation is a second confirmation that they need to print the story. So he counts, and the guy says nothing. And the guy says, you got it now? And he says, yeah, I got it. He said, you understand? He said, I understand. Thank you. And he hangs up, and he's all excited. He got his second confirmation. Well, that guy turns around and says, I thought you were saying countdown or whatever. He plays a game. He plays a game with him on the countdown method and what it meant to back out as a source for the story. And actually says, I never said this, and I don't know where they got this, and all that. So two things you learn from watching all the president's men is you better be very careful who you get as a source, because if they pull out on you, you have egg on your face and look bad as a reporter. But number two, name your sources. Name your sources. They, they, they couldn't even use Deep Throat, who by all accounts after the fact was probably Alexander Haig, in the Nixon administration, who was acting as that source on deep background, hence they called him Deep Throat. They couldn't even use him as a source, even though he was unidentified and wouldn't allow himself to be identified. He also wouldn't allow anything he was telling Bob Woodward to be printed. He had to verify everything he told Bob Woodward by other sources. 
That was the understanding Deep Throat gave to Bob Woodward. I'll tell you things. I'll lead you in the right direction, but you have to verify it through other people. You can't name me even as even as an anonymous source. So what you saw in all the president's men, what you see if you watch it is reporters that had credibility because they played by the rules, the journalistic norms, and they held very strict standards. And the one time you see a little shady change of it by Dustin Hoffman's character, Carl Bernstein, because he's so anxious to get a story out, it blows up in his face and makes him look bad. In the end, they nailed the story and they got the sources. But what you see in the movie, and it's well done, is Carl Bernstein was a little bit more willing to cut corners and play games as a reporter. Bob Woodward was not. Bob Woodward, who, by the way, was conservative. Bernstein, who was Democrat. Um, You saw that in their reporting, Woodward wanted to get it right and wasn't looking to nail the other party, nor was Bernstein looking to nail a party. We didn't live in those times back then. It wasn't a Republican versus Democrat system. It was just, you know, well, he's in the other party, so it would be nice. But I mean, on the other hand, did he do anything wrong or not? And we believed in Americans and we believed in the American president. And that's why it was such a huge, huge, shocking story that they uncovered that the president of the United States would actually be operating in such a nefarious way when he had no need to. You know, he was very popular and he was going to win in a landslide. The fact that he had created a slush fund for the paying off of people and the doing of dubious activities in order to secure that he maintained power when he didn't even need that was sad and a sad reflection on the state of politicians and people in power and what they're willing to do in order to maintain that power. But the question is, what is the media willing to do in order to gain the power of uncovering a blockbuster story in order to gain the prestige and the notoriety that comes with uncovering a blockbuster story and what all the president's men tells you in brilliant fashion is they're not willing to sell out their integrity. And even when you team two reporters together are very different, like the chain smoking, uh, corner cutting more off the cuff liberal esque reporter in Carl Bernstein, you team them up with the more stuffed shirt, little more serious, clean cut, serious conservative reporter in Bob Warburg. They work together. They work together as a team. And overall, they did a great job. And they didn't cut corners in the end. And they did it proper. And that's why when they got him, they got him. Now, true, it helps. There were recorded tapes. But there are tapes of Trump. There are tapes of him on the telephone. There are tapes of him in the trailer with, you know, the Bush boy saying, grab him by the pussy. And he still got elected president. So... I don't think we're living in an age where the tapes matter as much as we're still living in the age that we were living in back in the 70s, which is reporters are supposed to be objective. And I don't care. You could line up a thousand or a million right wingers or Republicans that say the left wing media, the liberal media, they've been saying it for years. It never cut any swath because everybody knew that at the end of the day. You didn't go into journalism because you were a liberal. You studied and got a degree and learned how to be an excellent journalist and worked for the preeminent 
papers such as the New York Times or the Washington Post because you wanted to get to the truth. You wanted to protect the people's right to the First Amendment. And you wanted to protect their right to know what was happening and not silence their right, their rights under the Constitution to know. And reporters certainly might lean more left because it takes a bleeding heart. It takes an active, loving, kind of passionate soul to really want to fight for truth. There aren't a lot of right-wing conservative types who are like, fight for truth, you know? <laughs> it's like basically fight for my money, fight for my religious ideals, you know? Fight for what I think should be shut down a conservative and everybody should be careful about. Not as passionate, not as passionate. <laughs> but they're firmer about it. Maybe not as passionate, but they're very firm. And they, they used to adhere to rules. Now, of course, the only rules for the right-wingers are no rules. The rule is there are no rules. The rule is lie. The rule is make it up. The rule is just bullshit your way through it. And, and if you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, just say fake news. So now more than ever, now more than ever, the objectivity of the press is paramount. And whether or not the press is mostly run by left-wingers is irrelevant. It always was. It used to not matter because at the end of the day, they had enough checks and balances where they got burned if they got it wrong. So they didn't get it wrong that often. And once they got it wrong too often, they were out. Nobody listened to them. The National Enquirer comes to mind. <laughs> Once you're known as a bullshit rag, you're done. You're toast. Fake news, nobody had any time for them, except the little old ladies in line at the grocery store. Serious newspapers took their job seriously. And they made sure to get it right. Credibility was on the line. It was, it was, it was imperative that they act with credibility and verify their sources and not publish stories with anonymous sources. Publish stories with sources that could go on the record so that the, they would have to deny it later. And why would they if they already know they're, they're going to be published in a major newspaper the next day saying what they say? Of course they can't turn around and deny it. It was important to only bring the news to the people when people that were willing to tell the truth face-to-face Gave it to them. Now, because of social media, everybody wants to get there first because there's so much news that's televised, commercialized, because we have these 24-7 news channels and news is no longer something you wait for the next day in the paper and they get a lot of time to vet it and check it and then they go to print with it, go to print with it. Another great movie on this is The Paper. You should see that. It's a comedy, but it's a vastly underrated film. I'm not a big fan of Ron Howard as a film director, but he did a very good job with a really good cast in The Paper, led by Michael Keaton, Pittsburgher, I think a really good actor and a really funny guy, but one of his best performances really ever. Might be my favorite performance by Michael Keaton, probably after Night, Night Shift, Night Shift number one, but that's mostly funny mix of drama and funny the paper is a really good performance by michael keaton 
Marissa Tomei does a nice job as his wife in that film. Robert Duvall, a good job as the editor of the newspaper. Glenn Close, Oscar winner by that time, plays his rival at the newspaper. It's a good cast. It's a good cast. And uh, I think David Kep wrote the screenplay. You know, solid screenplay writer. Ron Howard, of course, Oscar winner eventually for directing, directed it. Um, but it's a good story on, on, on the ethics of being a, a journalist. That's a little bit later than All the President's Men. I believe that movie was made in the 90s or thereabouts, maybe the late 80s. But All the President's Men is the preeminent, wonderful film. And, you know, Spielberg made that movie The Post with uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks recently. But that that that's not even close. And all these other political thrillers, I'll be honest, they don't put a patch on the bum of All the President's Men. And the th- what you take away from All the President's Men is that the truth matters and that journalists are the bastions of truth and that they are intellectuals, in effect, at, at the highest o- of the highest order because you know the, their editor, the editor of their papers and their editors in general, and they themselves know that what they put out there is going to shape history. And so they're very careful about it and their personal leanings might – cause them to want to cut corners, but they can't do it because if they do, it will blow up in their face and they will be undermined and their careers will be ruined. Because at the end of the day, it was about getting it right and getting to the truth and the people have a right to the truth. The objectivity of the press was paramount. And what we're seeing today is too often... They're able to be denied and refuted and called liars, and they're not able to come back with their sources saying, hi, I'm John Smith. I'm currently working alongside Donald Trump every day in the White House, and I'm the one that they quoted on this, and I stand by it. Call me a liar, Donald Trump. I'm calling you a liar. I'm the, I'm the guy that they went to in this New York Times story. And oh, by the way, here's Joan Kupar. The other woman who was the second source that was the basis for the story in the New York Times. Here she is now. Here's her face. Here's her standing by the story. Here are positions in the government. This whistleblower insider hush-hush shit isn't top-notch reporting. Because you can get just as many people pulling your leg and fucking with you and feeding you bullshit so that the story blows up in your face and makes Trump look like a saint as you can get people telling you the truth. If people aren't willing to go on the record, that should tell you something about the credibility of the story. But reporters today are more interested, and newspapers sadly, even the great ones, are more interested in sources they believe behind the scenes but can't reveal, but can't reveal sadly. And using that, to play gotcha on the president because he's such a bad dude. But they are eroding away their own credibility. Now, I'm still a big believer in the Washington Post and the New York Times, and I don't believe they've lost credibility, but that's me. That's because I'm a big believer in the press. I have old-fashioned ideals. But the sad truth is they're losing a lot of other people out there. You know, they're losing... American citizens who were on the fence about whether or not they believed that the media was a bunch of liberals or was just looking, were they just looking for ratings and to make money? I mean, there are a lot of left wing people who use the 
MMM acronym all the time on social media to slander and bash the press. Main, I'm sorry, MSM, MSM. Mainstream media, mainstream media, mainstream media. It's the buzzword to call them bullshit. Mainstream media means what the government, see, the left wing thinks it's what the government's trying to feed us. Huh? Well, the, the government in charge right now is saying the mainstream media is all liars trying to take down the government. But then you got the left wing people saying the mainstream media is the voice of the government. Bottom line is these are the extremes of our country, and unfortunately they make up a lot of people in our country. And they're not believing the media. They're not believing the objectivity and the truth of these very, very well-vetted institutions who have been at this a long time, who I still believe have tremendous amounts of high-quality employees who do their job spectacularly. And I believe that the work that they do is crucial to the survival of this nation. You have a top-notch scumbag like Donald Trump calling the media the enemy of the people? Again, watch all the presidents, men. That's the media. They are not the enemy of the people. They are your best friend. But I wanted to make a podcast advising them to watch all the president's men. Every single last member of the media needs to watch that film because they need a refresher course on how to do their job right. How to nail it down and seal it up with caulking so nothing leaks through. They need to understand how valuable and important their work is, especially now in the face of being called out as fake and liars and phonies all the time. And I'm sorry, but we see too many instances where they're not able to immediately come back with any accusation and say, boom, there, we're the media, we nailed this down. You're a liar, boom, you're out. Trump, I believe if the media were actually better at their jobs today, if they did the kind of work Woodward and Bernstein did back in the day, when they were investigating Nixon, if they were that solid all the time today, Trump would have been impeached, even with a Republican Senate. I truly believe that. I really believe that there haven't been enough stories where the evidence has been nailed down by sources who will go on the record who are valid. And... If you don't have that, then I'm sorry, you shouldn't run with the story. All you have is a bunch of leaks and a bunch of gossip that can't be validated or corroborated enough to do what should be done if the story were true, which is get his ass out of office. You're failing, New York Times. You're failing, Washington Post. You're failing, Wall Street Journal. You're failing, If all of these reports don't do their job, which is, if it were true, this guy would be gone. If it were true, people like Lindsey Graham and even Mitch McConnell, believe it or not, wouldn't be able to deny it. Because in so denying it, they would be denying the credibility of people that went on the record that they know to be credible, as opposed to Trump, who everyone and their mother knows is not credible. If you can't get these guys to go on the record... Don't print the story. I would rather not know about these stories than have all this truth come out but just be flushed down the toilet. Look what it's doing to the ethics of this country. 
When you know that X, Y, and Z garbage can be done by your president and he can get away with it, it's destroying the ability of this country to rein in illegal conduct by its highest powers. It's ruining America. So in a secondhand way, the press is ruining America, not by lying, but by failing to come forward with the truth in such a way that it can't be credibly denied. That used to be their job, printing something that because it's in the paper, it's true. It's accepted as truth because it was published. And how do you do that? You do that with credible sources, multiple on the record. And if you can't get that, you don't print it. It's gossip. It's rumor. And it will just be lied about and denied. And then you'll have this vague notion of what the truth used to be, might be, could be, probably isn't. And you'll have a criminal president marching on, living on, and and the damage to the democracy, to the hope of going forward and having a righteous government is, is, is irreparable. It's irreparable. You've allowed this guy to get away with so much because you didn't catch him good enough. It's what they said in the movie. Watch the movie. Please, go, go watch it now, all the president's men. When you take your shot and you miss, he gets away with it. You ruin it. You ruin justice. You ruin truth. If you're going to take your shot, you better get him. You better get it right. You only got one shot at this. If you reach for it and blow it, you'll ruin your credibility, the credibility of the news, the credibility of truth. And in this case, the effectuation of democracy. Ruined. Over and over and over again. This guy's gotten away with lie after lie after lie because the media, although bringing us a whole boatload of truth, has failed to nail him down, nail it down and nail him down at the same time. They failed in their job, just like Robert Mueller did as an investigator. This guy keeps wiggling away, snaking his way out of it all. But it's, I'm not going to just blame him. No, I won't. I'm blaming Robert Mueller for not going that extra mile and making the allegations and creating charges and putting his reputation on the line. And I'm blaming the media for printing story after story that is true, clearly true, but with no one behind it to stand by it. But the reporters and everybody can just call them biased and liberal and they lose all validity. You know, it's not enough to want it to be true. You have to prove it to be true. And it's not enough to have people that you believe behind the scenes proving it. You have to prove it to the rest of all of us, including to the right wingers. You have to prove that what you said and what you know is the truth. So that's that's what I want. So watch all the presidents, man. This was a long one. Holy hell, I'm pulling in at uh, 59 minutes now, probably making an hour. Why not drag it out another 60 seconds here? <laughs> Watch all the president's men. Watch it three, four, or five times and pray. Get down on your knees and pray that the, uh, the press of this country gets their act together so they get back to that level of quality and standard because they really are the best friend of the people. They really are the guard, the fence, the, the, the wall, if you will, between the illegal immigration of corruption in our government 
and the people that want the restoration of democracy and truth to reign supreme in our government. I love you. Yabba da boop